0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with David Marr. David joined me to talk in-depth about his new book, Killing for Country, a family story, which details David's great-great-grandfather's involvement in the Queensland Native Police and Australia's frontier wars of the 19th century. David explains how the dispossession of land and the massacres of Aboriginal people occurred and how they fought back. He also talks about its significance for today's politics. And it's my true delight and pleasure to welcome onto this program, for the very first time, David Marr, who has been very busy and very hard at work for at least four and a half years working on a masterpiece. This book that we're about to discuss is called Killing for Country, A Family Story, which has been published through Black Ink. It is certainly a, um, a really fascinating narrative nonfiction or, or history book about the frontier wars in Australia, in particular focusing mostly around Queensland, but we do start off the story in New South Wales. Now, for those listening who aren't familiar with David Marr, and I'm sure that's very few, but for those who aren't, he is a writer and journalist and lately has been writing for publications including The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, The Sydney Morning Herald, and he has also written many books including Patrick White, A Life, The High Price of Heaven, Dark Victory, Panic, and also many quarterly essays including my favourite, Power Trip, which I still refer to today. His other book that he's also written more recently is My Country. So it is with my great pleasure and honor to welcome onto the show, David Marr. Hi there, David, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank
1: you for that extravagant introduction, Amy. Thank you.
0: That's what we're all about here. Uh, oh. And <laughs> and I wasn't even really pumping up your tires that much because as someone who actually has majored in history and truly does appreciate the craft of history, I was reading your work in amazement at the amount of detail and Archival research that you've done because this book not only draws on micro history but also macro history. It's a fascinating combination of both. So it's drawing you into very personal stories, but it's putting it into a broader picture, a broader context. So I really appreciated just how you've combined those two aspects of storytelling in history because often it's usually one or the other. It's very difficult to do both.
1: That was the plan to to take a new look at the frontier wars through the eyes of this family, which by unhappy chance is my family, and in that way, kind of bring fresh eyes to this to this subject. That was the
0: plan. Well, it certainly worked, because I have read a lot of the other works on it, and it really did bring something new for me. And we are talking about, as you said, your family. Very distant family, but they are absolutely your family. And I'd love to jump into this story, I guess, starting with how you decided to write a book like this and what evidence you found to set you off on this journey.
1: Well, it started with the centenary celebrations for the end of the First World War. We're not a family history searching family. We have, like most families, half a dozen stories. Now, this is all about my mother's family, not my father's family. It's not about the Mars. They were blacksmiths who came to Australia in the 1860s and did okay. And, but my mother's family was a family, as I say, which was pretty good at secrets. And we knew very little about them. But anyway, one surviving uncle, gorgeous man, said, let's a party of us, go over to France for the celebrations for the centenary of the end of the First World War. Because his father, my grandfather, fought in the First World War, was a, just a gunner in the First World War. And for the first time in my life, I dug out some stuff about the family. And it was a year later, and the same uncle, Jim, came to me and said, you seem to be pretty good at this. Can you dig out something about my grandmother, Maud? Because I know nothing about her. And I hadn't been digging for long when I was looking at a photograph of her father, my great-great-grandfather, sitting there pompously in the uniform of the Queensland Native Police. He was a professional killer of Aborigines.
0: Yes, and we're talking here about Reginald or Reg Ewer.
1: That's right, Reg Ewer. And it turned out that his brother was in the massacring business as well, the pair of them. It turns out that they were pretty notorious in their day and they've been mentioned here and there in the histories of the frontier wars, which I've read. And, Amy, I saw the name, and I didn't connect it with me. But now, looking at that photograph of a man, indisputably my great-great-grandfather, it was, it it slammed me, I have to say. Mm. It, it really rocked me. And, and I haven't been the same since. And I knew within half an hour of seeing that photograph and digging around a bit, checking up that the native police were, as I thought they were, yes, they were a a military wing of the Queensland government, employed to kill Aboriginal people, white officers, Aboriginal troopers, survived for over 60 years. And there were these two forebears of mine sitting there as officers. And I've been reporting race in Australian politics for nearly 50 years, from the time I began as a journalist, it has always fascinated me, the undertow, the awful undertow of race in the politics of this country. And I had never thought, i have never thought to check if any of my lot were involved. Isn't that, mm. I mean, I was embarrassed, but I also thought, how oh, Australian is that? Yeah, You know, it's just yeah. completely Australian. You recognise that all of this is going on, but you don't think it's you. And it wasn't me in the sense that, I mean, I didn't lift a gun. I didn't gallop into an Aboriginal camp at dawn, all guns blazing. I wasn't guilty of any of it, but I was ashamed.
0: Yeah, I definitely understand that. I um, I started digging into my family history, but mine, mine was very different. My family made friends with the Chinese miners and actually mined alongside them and became business partners. So was a very interesting discovery for myself in a racial sense and and how it was a very rare thing on the goldfields to happen
1: Which goldfields
0: That was in Denoli in Victoria near Maryborough which is not the Queensland Maryborough that turns up in your story so it's up in the central west past Bendigo Right So that was a very very prominent place at the time, but it's now a lovely town because I went to the the local history museum and went through all their microfilms.
1: Aren't they wonderful? Aren't those local histories wonderful?
0: Brilliant people.
1: I absolutely came to depend on them because there were these enthusiasts who knew the stuff minutely. Mm. I got Maryborough all wrong until I bumped into a group of Maryborough researchers, people who lived there, And they showed me how that town operated and unfortunately pointed out to me that my family's record in the town was worse than I'd imagine. (laughs) Um, But those local history societies are our friends in this business, are our close friends.
0: They are truly invaluable and often volunteers who aren't getting paid anything. Oh, yes, uh, of course. Yeah. No, I loved the acknowledgement section because it was uh, a lovely list of people to read about. That's my usually my favourite section.
1: Uh-huh. I also <laughs> paid out on a few of my friends, you would have noticed.
0: Yes. <laughs> That's necessary, isn't it? Oh. I, no, I was interested also because you said it, this book is a little bit late, and as are most books usually, but obviously you were dealing with COVID. And, you know, before we jump into some of the aspects, I just wanted to, I guess, acknowledge the archival research you must have done, but also the usefulness of Trove, which I assume would have been quite invaluable to you.
1: Trove is this extraordinary engine which is opening up the reality of Australia to us all. What used to take professional searches a month to track down, we can sit at our desks and find in five minutes. Mm. You know, I've learned not to be snooty, about the mistakes made in Australian history books before Trove, because we can correct them. We can word search. We can go back to the 1790s word by word now. Trove is extraordinary, but the other thing, I had a little army of professional searchers for me working in the archives. When COVID hit, the archives all shut. And that's when my partner, Sebastian Tesserero, became my searcher, and from that point also, Became my collaborator in this in this task. And he is a, a genius at finding material on the internet and an absolute bastard for precise accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> he was able, he was able to find the exact acreages that the slaughtering squatters had claimed. The exact acreages.
0: I was wondering how he even did that, because that was so specific.
1: It can be done. And he loved doing it. And the book is the book is so much the better for, you know, you get a voice of, of somebody in one of these debates about the fate of the Aboriginal people, and we're able to give the name of his property and then the size of the property, and that tells you a lot about the man. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was um, that was uh, terrific. We worked we worked for most of the last four years together, it was really terrific. By God's yeah. arguments, but
0: we won't do it. <laughs> it must have been a bonding exercise at the minimum. But yes, I just wanted to, I guess, acknowledge the first part of the book. We won't go into all the detail of it because there's a lot there. And it's very wonderful because it sets the scene as to the uh, unruliness, really, of New South Wales as a colony. And you know what was going on in terms of class, especially between convicts and you know the people who saw themselves as far above those. Especially the main character, really, of the first part, which is Richard Jones, who seems he was a crook too. Yes, indeed.
1: They were all. I've come away from this exercise recognizing that the colonies were were cesspits of crime. It didn't matter what class you were in; Mm. it was a criminal Mm. enterprise. But the first section of the book establishes for me as the result of my research, because I wanted to know how the land taking system started. How did it start? Where was the political support for it? How did it deal with its own critics? Because there were critics from the start in the colonies saying of land taking, this is theft. And of slaughters, this is murder. And those voices continued for the rest of the century. I became terribly, terribly keen to to give them their due Mm. in the debates and the political struggles that went on. So the first part is very largely working out how these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres could just be stolen for nothing and then how it set up this class of landholders whose ambition was to clear their land of its Aboriginal inhabitants.
0: Yes, it's just such a different way of talking about it. I actually haven't really read an account of it like this, so it's so useful because I felt like I was there. And it's wonderful that you did quote so extensively with the primary sources, because it does feel like you're transported alongside your narrative You know, weaving around it. It's just such a great way of doing history. Never
1: underestimate how beautiful the newspapers were, mm. uh, how beautiful the voices of governors and high officials were. They wrote the purest kind of English, which was apparently relaxed, but was packed with specific meaning. Great stylists. And the arguments between those who supported and those who opposed the, the survival and the prosperity of the Aboriginal people are so eloquent. I loved them.
0: Yes, yes, no, they it is really wonderful. Um, let's talk a little bit just about life there, just to give listeners a picture of what it was like because it does end up translating into when we move up to Queensland because essentially the wool trade and sheep especially was how a lot of people were making their money. Obviously, with uh, Richard Jones, he was quite prolific in the things he was involved in, including trade between Canton and Australia with tea, for example. Can you paint a, a bit of a picture for us as to the landholders in this early time and what they were doing with their land, what their aim was?
1: Of course. Look, until the early 1830s, the idea had been that settlement would be contained around what became Melbourne in Tasmania, Van Diemen's Land, and especially around Sydney. It would be contained, it was a more economical way of colonising. And they also had ludicrous notions that it would lead to thatched cottages, pretty village churches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was nonsense. And then in the early 1830s, they decided to just let the squatters loose into the bush. And it's what I call the unique Australian invention of invasion by sheep. And the sheep invaded the continent. And as they invaded, the vigilante parties of the, of the squatters killed. And the squatters were always begging for some sort of police force that could go out with them into the bush and clear the land of its Aboriginal owners. And eventually in the late 1840s, that was set up. And that was the native police, as I said before, white officers and black troopers. The people who were, who were going out into the bush didn't need to buy their land. The land was free. All they had to do was stock it. So they needed sheep. And the people who could afford to take sheep out into the bush, a lot of them were the younger sons of very rich English and Scottish families. There were a lot of people out on the frontier who were born in castles, and there were also a lot of people borrowing money at very high rates of interest. So the whole thing was, from a business point of view, Wild and fragile and deadly for the, for the original inhabitants, and for a time extraordinarily profitable, fortunes were made. Then the times grew tougher. But either to make more money, you took more acres, or if you were in trouble financially, you took more acres again to try and rescue yourself. It was all about take, take, take. And nobody really believed that the original owners of the land would do any compensation whatsoever for its loss. There were some beautiful clerical voices saying, but we are going to give these savages an opportunity to enter the light of Christ. And that's compensation enough for their millions and millions of acres. The established church, the Church of England, did nothing to protect, did nothing to protect the Aboriginal people. Other Christians were wonderful, but the established Church of England, terrible. And so this army of sheep and men moved south and west from Sydney and then north, always up into the beautiful pastures of the north, into what became Queensland.
0: Indeed, indeed. I wanted to read out a quote here because it reminded me of this idea that we talk about the latte sippers in Melbourne who what would they know about what goes on in the bush and there was um, the Sydney Herald who talk about the quote whalers over the Aborigines, whalers as in crying. They describe theorists and other desirous of acquiring a reputation for humanity. They describe city elites as philanthropists who sit at ease at home to talk and write of the quote poor Aborigines and then this idea of a groupthink, it is quite evident that the sentimentality and ravings of a parcel of European canters have had their effect on the minds of many mistaken men in this colony. And then there's obviously the last line there, which is, quote, weep over the perhaps necessary shooting of a black, which is, that one's particularly galling to read. But, I mean, that, it does sound almost Yes, I know,
1: until I started work on this book, I thought that the language of virtue signalling had been invented for the culture wars. But there it is, Mm. in full flight, in the 1830s and all through the 19th century in Australia, attacking those who were standing up for the Aboriginal people. They were attacked as showing off their humanity, ignorant city dwellers, unaware of the harsh realities of the bush, the whole thing, the whole thing. And one of the things I really loved was Armchairs. Armchairs became this stupendously vilified bit of furniture. And the newspaper debates were always attacking people for sitting in armchairs by their fires at oh, no. home. Not <laughs> rural armchairs, not armchairs in the bush. They were virtuous armchairs. <laughs> City armchairs were the centres of ignorance and moral boasting, etc, 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 etc. I just, I couldn't believe it. There it is. It's a very, very old way of doing a very, very old task, which is to belittle decent people who have decent
0: values. Yes. It was refreshing to know that there were people there with decent values. As you point out, on the Christian side, there were people who certainly didn't hold that view and then some who felt like there was a moral argument or a justice argument in terms of the fact that they should receive something in return or there should at least be an accommodation so that there might be some way of living together so that the Aboriginal people might be able to still hunt on their lands. There was that idea as well.
1: That's right. And its failure as an idea is unique to the colonisation of this country. In South Africa, in New Zealand, aotearoa and in North America, the British set land aside for its original inhabitants. And Nothing was set aside here. The law didn't run in the bush at all. The murderers of the blacks were never punished. The kidnappers of the blacks were never punished. When I say never punished, there were a few remarkable trials Mm -hmm. and executions. But essentially, once they were passed in the late 1830s, for the rest of the century and into the 20th century, no one was punished for the terrible things that they did to Aboriginal people. No one.
0: Indeed. And, I mean, Mile Creek Massacre, that's one that surely a few people would be familiar with as being an example of that. But then there's also this idea that once it was obvious that there was violence going on and that it was unsavoury or not appropriate because the imperial government had said you're not supposed to do that, then they're switching to this more covert mode of operation and they're moved to things like poisonings. Things that they would potentially be more likely to get away with,
1: or the, the operations of the native police itself. Mm. The native police. There are scholars have put a lot of time into trying to work out how many how many Aboriginal Australians may have been killed by the native police, and there are figures varying from twenty thousand to sixty five thousand. But but what we do know is was the most deadly force on the continent during the colonisation years, and They were not entirely covert. Everybody knew what was going on. They didn't necessarily know the details. And there was all sorts of code. The word disperse was the code most often used by the press. And sometimes the press put it in inverted commas to make sure that people didn't think that groups of Aboriginal people were being simply allowed to run away. There is evidence it meant kill. And no official of the Queensland government ever contradicted the evidence that the word disperse meant kill. So that it was this strange mixture of being secret and open, unrecorded and recorded. And the material is there that lets not just me, but many, many scholars give an account of how bloody the Australian frontier was.
0: There's really some very interesting examples once we get to Queensland, which is really the second part and further on, because you give account after account of cover-ups and scapegoating, and one that stood out to me was the example of George Brown, who was an eyewitness of a particular attack, and he was essentially captured after this massacre had occurred, dragged through the mud, and you know sent off to jail. It was quite astounding to me to see that there was this kind of attempt of pretense that there's some form of justice or process involved in dealing with massacres.
1: The problem was for the, for the authorities there that Mr Brown was an eyewitness to a massacre who was not Aboriginal because until the late 1870s in Queensland and New South Wales, Aboriginal people were not allowed to give evidence in court because, as you would understand and surely sympathise, Amy, they had no concept of heaven and hell and it is this concept that if you lie in court you will go to hell that makes all white witnesses in court invariably honest are you with me
0: yes that's yes, the oath
1: the aboriginal people however not having a grasp of the great punishment that might await them for lying to a judge they couldn't give evidence at all and that allowed Massacres to go on and on, whether it was by rifle or by poisoning, because no survivors could give evidence against the perpetrators. But Mr. Brown, he was actually Sri Lankan, but he was he was not an aborigine. He could give evidence, so they took him from the hinterland of Brisbane and put him in jail in Sydney. The Attorney General and the Governor knew perfectly well that there was a swizzle going on here, and they insisted that it all be done again. And another swizzle was done, at which point they entirely lost their resolve.
0: Mm.
1: This story is in large part a story of officials who every now and again gave it a go to try to achieve some kind of just outcome, but they never really followed through. Mile Creek was was the great exception when seven shepherds were hung for their role in the unprovoked slaughter of women and children and men up north of, uh, north of the Liverpool Plains. But otherwise, you know, good governors, good attorneys general, good officials would occasionally give it a bit of a go, but they still got nowhere. They got nowhere.
0: I want to talk about the native police, and you have a great quote at the start of part two, which is the colonial treasurer speaking. What do you mean by dispersing? and Lieutenant Frederick Wheeler, who we get to know very well, says firing at them. So, you know, there's clearly no ambiguity there, as you've just already told us about what dispersal means.
1: Yes, or what the tactics of the native police were. Mm. They had the name police, but even the officials in the early governments of Queensland said, look, they're not police. They're really a quasi-military force. Their job was not to bring people in for trial. Their job was to deal with them in the bush. And that essentially meant kill them.
0: Yeah. It reminds me, um, Henry Reynolds said that, you know, paramilitary, like there was no process, no trials, no any kind of warrant really.
1: Henry Reynolds and Jonathan Richards have written very beautifully about Mm. about the Native police. What I've done is cut a swathe through it following the career of this family, which is a different way of doing it. But Henry Reynolds is, of course, the, um, the great originator of this area of scholarship. A mighty man.
0: He truly is, yes. I'm very lucky to have interviewed him twice so far. I want to talk about Edmund. Edmund Ewer, who, as we know, is your very distant relative.
1: Can I clarify?
0: Yes, go for it.
1: Mr Jones, the rich Sydney merchant who was also the president of the Bank of New South Wales, for reasons unknown, married a girl from a very poor family in London, and then he looked after her younger brothers And her younger brothers were the Ewer boys and he brought them out to Australia as they became teenagers and he gave them jobs. They were, Amy, frankly, pretty hopeless. But Edmund Blucher Ewer worked for Jones for 25 years. He was his lieutenant in the dispossession of hundreds of thousands of acres of land. And then he became a businessman in Maryborough. He was a hopeless businessman, but he was also politically well-connected and it was he who put both of his sons... Reg and Darcy, into the native police. You had to be, by the way, a gentleman to be an officer of the native police. You had to be a gentleman to go out slaughtering Aborigines. Again, you would understand that, Amy. It's absolutely Mm. necessary. And the jobs in the native police were highly sought after at a time when times were quite tough and there wasn't a lot of money around. And Edmund got these two sinecures for his sons and they went off commanding detachments of native police, Reg in sort of southern Queensland and up as far as Cardwall and Darcy, famously, up in the Gulf of Carpentaria.
0: Yes, which is very high up there. So thinking and reflecting on their involvement, there's imagery of the native police. We see in your one of your photographs that you published a sword. And I remember reading them saying, I wish I had a sword, you know, to show how mighty and honourable I am.
1: There was an argument that um, the troopers should be allowed swords because they would feel better about themselves as they went about killing. and So they were given swords.
0: Seems very performative though, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it is very performative. It's very weird. Mm. Um, and they were given swords and they also had guns. Guns that I was Amazed to Discover were originally developed for big game hunting in South Africa, slightly adapted for use by the native police in Australia. They delivered a fat bullet a very long way. But there were also ceremonial swords. And the officers, as well as having an instrument that could, you know, slash people's heads off, also had a delicate silver and beautifully made ceremonial sword. For official occasions, and the photographs of of Reg always have him with his ceremonial sword. The way in which this enterprise was dressed up as a worthy mission for educated people as officers is is sickening, and it went on and on for decade after decade.
0: indeed. And um, The governor, as you say, was deeply impressed by the native police. And you write that Frederick Walker claimed he was civilising the blacks where missionaries and the protectors of Aborigines had failed. And we're here talking about the involvement and co-opting of Aboriginal people into the native police to do the dirty work of the white officers. Can you explain to us the rationale and why they were engaged?
1: I can't entirely. There is no surviving testimony from a recruit to the native police to explain why he joined up. There's just no surviving testimony. Later on, people were kidnapped and hijacked to join the native police. Aboriginal prisoners were allowed to serve out their term as troopers in the native police. But it is also clear that throughout the history of the force, there was a a supply of young Aboriginal men who were happy to sign up. And as one of my Indigenous helpers said to me, David, you have to understand, victims don't make good choices, which I think is a very powerful thing. They were coming from a broken society. They were offered food, a lot of food, a little bit of money and women. and adventure, and they joined up.
0: What I also was interested in was the reasons why they would essentially get Aboriginal men to get into the bush, as you say, to strip off their clothes, climb into the bush, and let the officers stand back and just hear the fighting and, and killing going on, because essentially that means that they haven't witnessed what's happened. There's some kind of distancing of the perpetrators from the crime, in a sense.
1: This was a device which was used in the heavily forested parts of Queensland. There was this notion that a white man couldn't go in there, but a black man could. And so the troopers would go in while the white man sat on his horse on the edge of the trees and he would hear the pitter-patter of bullets and would never see what was being done in there and would never even have to report it. It was just, it was just a contact and that was mm. all.
0: And the other element to this is obviously that they were very much fighting back the aboriginal people they were not a passive group and obviously there were many nations as we all know so essentially this was as we've heard you know guerrilla warfare in many cases when there was that ability to utilize the bush and it wasn't wide open space there is this idea that there was some kind of reprisal or reparations involved when there was violence but often it was also as you point out unprovoked there was many examples of you know the wrong person or the wrong people being targeted
1: didn't matter who you punished because even if that particular person wasn't the man who speared your cow, his death would be a lesson to others. The, the inhabitants of the land, the original inhabitants of the land, took time, always took time to understand something they had no experience of whatever, their land being taken. There was a lot of hostility between Aboriginal groups, but it was not over land. It was not about the conquest of land. And the pattern very often was that you would have a year, 18 months, two years of peace when squatters and their sheep came into a district. Not only peace, but cooperation often. And then it would dawn on the Aboriginal people that these people were not going away and that they had come to take their land. That was a new idea. They had to get their heads around that. And then the fighting again. The fighting was provoked by the theft of women, the theft mm-hmm. of children. There's a wonderful quote I have in the book from somebody who says, a lot of the reasons for a black killing a white were the same for a white killing a white. You know, that white would have got it from a white if that white had stolen this man's wife, et etc." et cetera. But, yes, it was guerrilla warfare. It was persistent. It's pretty clear that those squatters, and there were many good squatters who attempted an accommodation with the people of the land into who it, that they were moving their stock, that they were dealt with entirely differently by their Aboriginal inhabitants. Mm. It was impatience and greed and clumsiness that was very often the cause of violence. And many of the squatters hated the native police because they were simply so indiscriminately violent and clumsy. They would come onto their properties and kill the men they had working for them. And so there was was a dialogue going on all the time between squatters and government about what these native police, led by my great-great-grandfather and his brother, what they should be doing, how they should be behaving. And the Queensland government did essentially nothing to rein them in.
0: Yes really essentially condoning it. You say that there is this kind of historical continuity. There's a sense that this war is still happening, but just in a different way. And you alluded to it at the start in terms of race in Australia. And I have been speaking with some First Nations peoples and, you know, they're telling me about their experiences during this referendum campaign for the Voice to Parliament. And it really has brought out the worst, I think, also the best, but a lot of the worst in Australia. And it does mean that these fractures and fault lines that we see are still there. This thing that you're writing about is not that distant.
1: Yeah. The community is being offered a pathway to peace by Indigenous leaders. And there is a very large section of this community led by Peter Dutton and the coalition parties, which is deliberately opting to continue the struggle. And it's not just the things we were talking about before, the sort of the culture war tropes, but there's also an argument which is as old as the colony. I mean, the colony's whole wealth came, until gold was discovered, came from the land of the Aboriginal people, and the Aboriginal people got nothing for it. But any tiny little bit of revenue spent on the Aboriginal people was considered extravagant and wasted. And when you listen to the No campaign today, you Mm -hmm. can hear that same argument. We have given them so much. Bullshit. And it's all been wasted. Bullshit. But that was an argument in the 1830s, 40s, 70s, 1890s, 1920s, and that argument never ceases in Australia and it's been left loose by the referendum campaign and underneath it all is this notion that is very important to a surprisingly large section of this country that we owe the Indigenous nothing for the continent we took from them.
0: I know that you have said that you wrote this book as a kind of form of atonement but you don't feel that sense of personal guilt for one's ancestors' wrongdoing. But this is certainly a very great contribution to our understanding of the Frontier Wars and the native police. So I'm so grateful to you for writing it.
1: Amy, thank you. I'm an explainer. For my whole career as a journalist and as a writer, I've sought to explain. What Mm. I want to know for myself, I want other people to know. And this is a work of explanation. And I hope it is a new way of reaching people to tell them the single simple truth, which is we're a conquered country. It's as simple as that. We are a conquered country. And as soon as we can grasp that, we can work our way forward to a new accommodation with our past. That's the plan.
0: I hope that people can pick up Killing for Country, a family story written by David Maher, out through Black Ink. And thank you so much again, David, for joining us. Thank you very much, Amy.